Man, welcome to Four Points Church, week after Easter. Y'all must really like Jesus. Everybody comes last week. Yeah, y'all came this week. I love it. Uh, my buddy Rio is awesome. He's right here. My, I'm dying of an allergy something. We don't know, I don't know what's happening. I think Nora snuck in my room, my five-year-old, and put pollen under my eye. And so he gave me this pill. Now, this is, this is blind trust. If I go to sleep, Y'all just leave and turn the lights off. Okay. Um, hey, uh, we are excited that you're here with us. We're starting a brand new series today. It's a great day to be here with us at Four Points. Um, I love the book of Ruth. I love the Bible, uh, for that matter. And uh, yeah, let's turn that off for a minute. It's loud. Hey, cool thing. Last service, a husband and wife, they heard the message, wanted to be baptized, knew that was the next step of obedience. So the husband goes back, didn't plan on getting baptized got a shirt, some shorts, jumped in the baptistry. His wife, seeing his example, goes running out after him. She gets in her shirt, her shorts. I was talking to our elders. They come. They both get baptized last service. I think we can celebrate that. <laughs> Excited about what God's doing in their life. Um, another quick note, if you're reading the book of Proverbs with your kid, okay, like you're like, hey, I want to study the Word of God with my young child. There's a reason they make kid-friendly Bibles. And my son and I found that out this morning as we were listening to audio Bible of Proverbs 5, which speaks of the adulterous woman and how you shouldn't go and look for a prostitute to do what only the bride of your youth and a faithful woman of God and you should share. So why uh, forsake her breast for another? And my, there's ever been a time where I prayed that my son didn't hear the Word of God. It was this morning. Luckily, his ADD was in, and he wasn't paying attention, so I skipped over, and I think I've dodged a bullet. But tonight, if he comes up to his mom and asks questions, I'm in trouble. So uh, that's just a little uh, pro tip. You may want to, I don't know how uh, the children's Bible handles Proverbs 5, but you may want to go the children's route unless you're ready to talk about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. My mother-in-law is looking with a, a bad look at me right now, so... It wasn't intentional. I was trying to train him up to be a young man and not a dysfunctional one. Hey, we're in the book of Ruth. You may need a second to find it. Uh, it comes after the book of Joshua. It's before 1 Samuel. So if you're looking for it, it's right in the middle of those two books. It also gives us a good time stamp between those two books. So uh, the book of Judges is right before the book of Ruth as well. It's during the time of Judges that we're going to find the setting of this book. Uh, it's before we have a king but it's after they've settled into the land that God had promised that he would give them. So they've been broken free from Pharaoh. They've wandered around in the wilderness. God's given them a land overflowing with milk and honey. They are his people. He is their God. He's distinguished them in all of creation so that the world around them would see the work of God in the midst of the people of God, and they would come themselves to worship and grow to know this God. Uh, it doesn't go well very often. Uh, things start well, then apathy sets in. And in apathy, Israel's history is they then wander to other gods to give them what God didn't immediately give them when they asked. Um, God is on time. He's always faithful, but he is not a fast food service. He is not your genie, and he doesn't serve you in the sense of meeting every need when you want it, how you want it, but he is a God who serves his glory, and out of his glory serves and works for your good in that glory. And you and I need to be reminded from time to time that he is God, that you are not, 
and that sometimes waiting on God is good for us because it lets our faith and trust run deep into the ground instead of us having a shallow faith that runs the second we don't get what we want. So we get to the book of Ruth, and it is a loaded story that has everything that you want. It starts with a famine, uh, failure, and a funeral, but it ends with reconciliation and restoration and a beautiful story. Everything you could want in a good story is in it. Tragedy, despair, loyalty, hope, romance, and ultimately triumph. The book of Ruth is one of two books named after women in the Bible. The other is an Old Testament book called Esther. Ruth, though, is the only non-Jewish person who has a book named after in all of Scripture. It's a tiny little love story that speaks of the faithful providence of God over life's most difficult circumstances in our lives. Uh, We get so much detail as to what comes out of this story and its pivotal part in God's story as he's bringing ultimately Jesus to us, which we celebrated last Sunday. Over the next six weeks, I want to invite you to embrace the tensions of this story with me. Don't read ahead. Some of you have never read the book of Ruth. We're going to read all of it together here. Don't be that person that reads the first chapter and then skips over all the drama, reads the last chapter, so in the middle of the story when the tension's there, you don't have to feel it because you already know the outcome. Don't do that. We're going to look at this verse by verse. We're going to embrace the tension that it brings before us and the difficult questions that Naomi and Ruth likely faced as they were in the process of going through the unthinkable road of a lot of tragedy in the wake of the grief and bitterness that came after it. Are you tracking with me? That said, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at it together. In the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled, in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Epathrites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So we start in this story with tragedy. Uh, It is a difficult thing to stomach. We have a famine that has stricken the land, and what seems innocent, Elimelech, looking at no food on his table and no food in the land of Israel, goes to a land that's about 30 to 50 miles. That's old school archaeological stuff for us, somewhere between 30 and 50. I mean, you may end up in Woodruff, or you may just be in Sugar Tip. We don't know, but somewhere between 30 to 50 uh, miles away because there was bread there. Now, we get a lot of detail in the first verse. The first thing we get in the first verse is the time. It was the time of the judges. It was the time of the judges. What would it have been like to live during the time of the judges? Well, there was no king over Israel. And in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this. In the time of the judges, it was like this. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, a lot of you read that because we're in similar times, and you think, this sounds like freedom. This sounds like a really good idea. Everyone individually deciding what the law is going to be for themselves, living to that law, and trying to push others down so that they have a fair hand in life. I mean, what we have in current season of time is a society 
that is so self-interested that it's become others ignorant. We don't pay attention to our neighbor. We don't love our neighbor. We don't consider our neighbor. It's why we need the one another so much. It's why social media, it's going to be like, I don't think that we're so self-focused on ourselves. Let me explain. Uh, You have multiple social media platforms so that everyone can know what you think every time you think it. We can be envious of you and the life that you're living because you're living it better than everybody else. This is what I mean by self-promotion. It's that everyone needs to know the details of my life because at the end of of the day, a lot of us struggle with wanting to be God and not serve God. Instead of worshiping God, we want others to come and worship us. So we put up idols and markers of how we've achieved it and how we've done it, and others give us likes and comments that affirm us us in our self-interested life that lives the way that we want to live it. However, suicide's at an all-time high. Depression's at an all-time high. And if you look at the pharmaceutical business, the amount of medication it takes to get us through life in this blessed life in America is mind-boggling for our people that have so many choices and so many opportunities. You see, the, the lie that's in this text is you and I think if we do whatever seems right to us based on our conscience or whatever our conscience will allow, that we would be free. But what we get apart from God is never freedom, it's always bondage. The nation of Israel over and over again thought that they could work outside of God to get what they needed, and all they found was themselves being enslaved to the people that they went to in their time of need instead of going to God for what they needed. So it was a lawless time. Are you tracking with me? Number one. Number two, we're told that the place in which this famine broke out was a place called Bethlehem. Little town, big history. Uh, it's not known for much at this point. It's five miles away from Jerusalem, which would have been the center of Israel. Uh, out of it, there's a love story that's going to spring up in this book. It's going to lead to a child named Obed, who's going to be in the lineage of a king named David, who's a runt from the backwoods of Bethlehem, who's going to rise up, and God will give this prophecy that one day a king will come through the line of David and will establish his throne forever. That prophecy was fulfilled in a guy named Jesus, who was born of a virgin named Mary in a little town called Bethlehem, little town, not a lot of people there, a lot going on there, a lot of biblical history, a lot of the way that a lot of our hope and faith built out of this little town. But my point is, don't despise small beginnings. Can I just say that to someone who's got something small and insignificant going on, and you don't think there's much to it, and you're like, man, I just don't know if I should keep going. Don't despise small beginnings. God uses Bethlehems all the time to do great things that bring great glory to his name. So don't despise your Bethlehem. If it's small and insignificant in the eyes of others, overlook. God's not overlooking it. He sees it. And he works in small acts of faithfulness to bring glorious, beautiful uh, impact for his name and for his renown. All right, all right. Sorry, that was a rabbit trail. I don't have time for those today. Uh, time, free for all, place, Bethlehem, circumstance, number three, is famine. There's a famine. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread. Yet there's no bread in the house. It's like living in Whole Foods with no food on the shelves. This is essentially where we're at at this point in time in history. So the house of bread has no bread. And as a result of it, we have to ask the question, why? If you go back to Leviticus in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you will discover that there was this promise that if the people of Israel in Old Testament, and I'll put this within a New Testament framework so that we don't get jacked up and mess up in our thinking on it, but in the Old Testament... The covenant that God made with the people of Israel was that if they were faithful to him, he would bless them, protect them, and provide for them. But if they chose to go to other gods in other areas and their hearts drifted in apathy or indifference from him, that he would give them the fruit of their rebellion, which would mean they would find themselves in need and in want and not protected by God. 
So likely what has happened is we're in a season of time where we know it's lawless, where the nation of Israel has rebelled against God and served other gods, and as a result, God said, well, let's see if they can provide for you. Because creations, what God created that you turn into a God can't speak and can't provide the way God can. It can't fill his shoes. So sometimes he lets you see the emptiness of their promises so that you understand there ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. But that's just for another time in another place. That was way better than I got from some of you right there. That was a great joke. That I like top tier. So they're in, they're in a place called Bethlehem. There's no bread. They're in the middle of a famine. It's likely because of disobedience. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, your current circumstances... It's not because God is being vengeful and wrathful for you. Jesus bore the curse, therefore we do not get the consequence of our sins from God that matters in eternity. So you and I, God's not getting back at you but in your circumstances right now if you're in Christ. He's not mad at you and he's trying to make you pay it off by sweating it out for a little bit if you're in Christ. The full punishment of our sin was put on Jesus so that you and I go free instead of getting what we should get from God, which is a scorn or a disconnection or indifference from God. Instead, we get grace upon grace, upon grace, and mercy, and love, and compassion, and the faithfulness of God in the midst of our unfaithfulness towards God. So you've got to embrace the fact that we're, this is why we like the new covenant, because it's not performance-based. It's not built on what you did, it's built on what Christ did. If you want to live the old way, or man's ritualistic way, it's built on what you do, giving you what you get, and sometimes in this broken world, you can do right and still get wrong. But God promises that under his leadership and headship, if you trust him and walk faithfully with him, and even if you stumble in his presence, that he will keep you and work all of it, your fault, their fault, the world's fault, whatever happens to you, to this glorious good and ending. So right now, you do not have God taking his wrath out on you in your life if you're in Christ. So don't, don't think that way. Then what, what can we think? Well, we can understand it this way. For some of you, you've sinned, and God isn't exacting, uh, extracting wrath over you, but the consequence of that sin is carrying a weight that you're feeling. Meaning, you, you neglect your finances for 10 years. You smudge it. You, you don't pay attention. You don't steward your money or fi- follow biblical advice on how to spend money. So then you find yourself in debt, and you don't have enough money to fund the things you need to fund because you've been funding all the parties that you wanted to fund. And as a result of it, you're in a deep hill. You come to God. You pray a prayer. Magically, the debt doesn't go away, and the debt collectors don't stop calling. Where's God? What you're dealing with is a consequence. And the answer is God's with you in it at the moment of repentance, and he'll lead you through it. But sometimes before it gets better, under God's leadership, it has to get worse. Because you and I, we think we've fallen from here to here, and God naturally leads us back there. But God isn't back in your past, as I spoke of last week. He meets you in your present, and his plan is to take you to where you've yet to go. So sometimes in this leadership, you're thinking it's bad, but the valley gets deeper before he then leads you out to the new place that he's going to lead you to go. And you've got to understand that just because you prayed a prayer one time doesn't make up for the nece- for necessarily for the consequences of 10 years of ignoring the word of God. Like you can't cheat on your wife repeatedly, come to church one time, have Pastor Russ pray over you once and expect her to trust you all of a sudden. Okay? God has forgiven you. He loves you. And the grace of God is that by his work in her, she may have compassion and forgiveness for reconciliation to take place in the marriage. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. It's going to be the long, ongoing, gracious work of God in you in the midst of stumbling and working forward. And the ongoing, gracious work of God in her that's going to bring the reconciliation that you seek. But don't think that it comes overnight because God's in it. God's in it and he makes it possible, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I'm preaching, y'all quiet, I know. I I know this look, I've seen this audience before. 
So we got a time, we got a place, we got a circumstance. It's in the middle of a famine. And then we got what seems to be an innocent action. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were a pathrites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, okay, when they reached Moab, that doesn't seem like bad. It's Elimelech's job to take care of his family. There's no bread in Bethlehem, so he gets up and he goes 30 to 50 miles over to this place called Moab where they have bread, right? Seems innocent, except what's happening is a full-on rebellion. And let me explain. Elimelech's name means God is my king. The reason the nation of Israel is in the famine is because they've wandered from their king. Good leadership would be leading in repentance to the king. But instead of repenting to the king, he wanders further from the king, thinking that he can outweigh him in the famine. So instead of dealing with what needed to be dealt with, Elimelech runs from what needs to be dealt with and takes his entire family with him to this far-off place. On top of that, it ends with some words that are terrible to read in any parts of Scripture. It says, when they reached Moab, they, they acclimated. They were made to be the people of God, to be led by God, to be provided for by God. And now they've just acclimated to the Moabites. Why is this such a big deal? Well, Moab and Israel have a big bad history. In the book of Judges, Elgin, who's a Moabite, has come in and raided Israel when they had crops. So they've stolen from the table of Israel in the past. When Israel was wandering through the wilderness and they came through the land of Moabite, the Moabites wouldn't provide water or let them pass, but they gave them a difficult time. So God put a curse on the Moabites for not helping his people in that. And he forbid in the scripture them having any kind of fellowship together. In fact, uh, we're told that in that what we have is a society that's over-sexualized in Moab and that the women were very loose and adulterous by nature in their culture. So what's the failure? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, 5, and 6, if you read verses 1, 2, and 3, you'll have a, a riot. We read it in first uh, service because I, I, did, I put too much in, and it talks about crazy things. But some of you are really interested. You're not paying attention to anything I say now because you're reading verses 1, 2, and 3. But... <laughs> It says this, these nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam and the son of Beor from, Pe from Pether and in a distant, that place, to curse you. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam. He turned the intended curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. And as long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Amorites or the Moabites. Where are they running? Moab looking for, in their living, the, the prospering of the people of Moab, looking for Moab, what they're not getting immediately from God when they want it. Essentially, instead of Elimelech living as if God is his king, he lives as if he has no king. He wanders off to Moab to find what he can't get from God quick, leads his family with him, and in this full-on rebellion, he does something that many men do today. Elimelech provided for his family financially, but he starred them spiritually and relationally. I put bread on the table. What more do you want from me? Well, God wants a lot more. God wants a lot more from you. And I, I don't want to beat men up. I want to build men up. 
But I, I need to be very clear to my brothers in this room. You, you are more than a paycheck to your family. It's not your job to work nine to five and then check out in the recliner and drink a beer until you doze off into a stupor, ignoring and not helping your wife with the raising up of a generation of people who are going to look at your example and mimic it. Eliminate, Eliminate, when he leaves, doesn't think, who will be our friends? Who will be our prayer support? Who will be our accountability? The, the temple at this time is in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant is in that tent. There, there's no going to be around the people of God for Passover. We're told by the time Malon and Kilion died, it's been 10 years since they've been around the people of God and the presence of God, which was uniquely around the Ark of the Covenant. So here we have a man that makes a short-sighted decision that looks from the world's eyes as being good, which is what the world does whenever you sacrifice your wife and your family and your legacy for money. Because he who has the biggest bank account gets the most praise in this world. But in the eyes of God, he's not impressed by dollars that mean nothing in his kingdom. And you can live your life for gold, but he paves the streets in heaven with it because it ain't that, it ain't that rare of a commodity in heaven. Getting real quiet up in here, ain't it? See, you're called to do more than just simply put food on the table. So, so humbly, I know this is different. It's going to be uncomfortable, and some of you are going to get mad, and you may leave, and I'm okay with that, but I love you, and this is why I'm doing it. Married men, would you please just stand up for me? Married men in the room. And would you give them, church, a round of applause? Let, I, I, wanna, I, I mean this with the Father's heart. I mean this in great love and compassion. I am with you in this. I fail at it frequently. I need the grace of Jesus to be sufficient for me in this endeavor. It is not easy to be a husband, but we have a man who is the God-man who has gone before us, and he has demonstrated what biblical manhood looks like on our behalf. And so I just want to encourage you with a few admonishments and a, and a, and a few pokes, uh, spurs, okay? God created fathers to do more than make money. As fathers, we are to set the spiritual pace for our households. It is your job, according to Ephesians 5, to love your wife. It's a commandment, not a feeling. It's an action, not a statement or an idea. We are to demonstrate that love in the model of what Christ has done for his bride, the church. We are with our words to clean our family, to remind them of their redeemed identity, to wash our brides with the water and the word in the way that we speak, to serve our brides as Christ served his church. We are to be the lead repenters of our household. That means we are the first to acknowledge when we fall short so that our families in our example understand that when they fall short, they don't have to run from God, but they can run to God. And we get the mantle and the opportunity to be lead repenters, to be lead servants, to set the spiritual pace for our family. There are kids in many of your life who are going to have your name for generations. And you are being mimicked by the gods you served and the actions you take. Men, the Holy Spirit is sufficient to empower you. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover you so that you can faithfully serve your families. God wanted to fill the world with his witnesses, so he made a family. 
I want that to sink in again. He wanted the world to be filled with his witnesses, and his design was taking one man and one woman, bringing them together, who love God, serve God, and worship God together, who then have children who love God, serve God, and worship God together, who then one day will find men and women who love God, serve God, and worship God, that then will get together, and the family has been God's way of giving consistent witness to his goodness and gospel for all of history. That's why we call the church the family of God. And Satan hates your family. And you have been told, men, that you are irreplaceable, that your dysfunction is admirable, that shirking responsibility and getting away with doing as little of the child raising, as little of the serving as possible, as little of the church attending, as little of the Bible reading, as little of the praying, as little of the repenting as possible is good. And I'm here to tell you that that definition of manhood is straight from hell who desire, and Satan who desires to rip you from the divine calling that you were made to fight for. And some of you are angry right now. And the reason you are angry in your life is because you've been fighting the wrong battle and you can't find this drive within you where it's supposed to be given for a good fight. And what I'm here to tell you is that you've been created to fight for your family, to fight for your kids, to fight for the glory of God in the way that you lovingly serve your community in a way that leads you to lay your head on your pillow at night exhausted knowing you're doing exactly what God has called you to do only to wake up and do it again the next day. Hey, idle hands get in trouble. And for many of you, you have idle hands that have not found your fight. Well, I'm communicating by God's grace to you this morning, men, that your fight begins with worshiping God over everything, trusting God in everything, and humbly leading your family to see through your example what that looks like. So men, I want to pray for you because the, the, the challenge is deep. And church, I want to pray for them. So would you extend your hands towards them? And if you know them, uh, put your hand on them and let's pray for them in this great call that they have. God, I thank you for the married men in this church. Not in some chauvinistic way because they've been called to lead, but in a humble, Christ-centered, Christ-exampled way, we have been called to lovingly serve and lead our families. So God, give us the humility to repent because repentance is not failure. It is actually the beginning of restoration. It's the actual beginning of a new season. And sometimes in order for a new good to begin, bad has to end. And the way bad ends is at your cross and through your blood that has paid it and delivered us from what we've done so that it now can no longer define us because your blood now has covered us and made us a new creation. Fill these men with your Holy Spirit. Give them the grit day in and day out to serve their families well. And God, I pray that you would make much through their family and witness to the glory of Jesus to their neighbors. And it's in his name I pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. You can sit down, man. Thank you, thank you. Single men, get ready. <laughs> Is it going to be like this the whole series? Oh, you have no clue. <laughs> it's going to be a great book. Don't, don't run. This could, God, through this book, by the Spirit, is going to change some of your family lives forever. Forever. I mean, we, we deal with life and death through this book. It, it cuts from truth to lie. And, and for some of you, you've been living in a lie and you're hearing the truth and it's, it hurts. Don't run into the darkness. Don't run. 
Elimelech has sons. Sons follow their father's example. Let me give you a sign of one of the failures I've had as a dad. I love, probably more than I should, Clemson football. Big fan. Best part of living on the West Coast is at 9 a.m. Guess what comes on on the West Coast? Clemson football. So I can literally wake up and all day neglect my family if I'm not careful and watch football. I'm not saying this as a past tense. Like, I have to guard my affections against it. Otherwise, I start arguing with people on the Internet about things that I have no control over. I mean, think about how stupid it is that I'm concerned about where an 18-year-old is going to go to college and whether or not they're going to play for my team or my rival's team. And I spend hours a day thinking about this when I have a son that I've been called to raise up to know Jesus that I'm not paying attention to while I'm paying attention to the recruiting uh, analysis of people that are going to places and playing games that my yelling and my t-shirts are not affecting them winning or not winning. And so I was watching the game one day and I was really into it and the refs blew a call and so I wanted to make sure they understood that they had blown that call from Bakersfield, California all the way in Clemson, South Carolina. So I let out a few remarks, okay? Because my team was getting beat like a tied up goat and I didn't like it. I came back in the room, and another play happened, and it wasn't good. And my three-year-old son, Lucas, at the time, just began giving the TV what for. And I recognized he was following the path of his father. He was worshiping at the altar of his father. He saw dad worship, therefore he worshiped. You want to know why we're losing a generation and why they're self-interested in themselves and why they have no uh, ability to have a work ethic in some of your minds or the ability to do whatever you're labeling over them? It comes from the path of their fathers. It comes from the path of their mothers. They watch what mom and dad do, and then they do accordingly. When baseball became more important, when other things became more important than the people of God and the presence of God, what ends up happening is they begin to think that God is secondary, not primary. As a result of that, they put him in a secondary position until other secondary secondary things trump that in its secondary position to which God falls to a third or a fourth position in their life. It came from the actions of a father or a mother that they mimicked in the path that they are walking. Now, we don't like to hear that in church, and I know it's an inconvenient truth, but what we have with Malon and Kilion are kids that followed in the path of their father. Elimelech, God is my king, walks away from his king, goes into a far-off land. Then his sons, they grow up, and they marry Moabite women. What's the big deal with marrying Moabite women? I mean, doesn't God love everybody? And you've got to understand this through an Old Testament lens. It would take me a half hour to explain all of it to you in its clarity for you to understand it. But here's what you need to know. God was choosing the nation of Israel to be his people by his law, to be separate from the rest of society so that the work of God could be present through them and be a witness to the entire world around them. And so they were forbidden of marrying people who had different value systems and different ethnic backgrounds. The highest divorce rate, some of you have heard the divorce rate within the Christian household or within the Christian faith is the same as those that aren't of the Christian faith. That is a manipulated statistic, and it is a lie. It is a lie. It is not true. Dig deeper. You got Google. Go to work. I promise you, what you're going to find is that men who love Jesus, that get married to women who love Jesus, end up serving Jesus together, and they stay together at a higher percentage than anybody else. Why? They have a capacity to forgive. They have a capacity to give compassion. That doesn't come from them. It's not that they in and of themselves are the rules that which they adhere to or what empower them. It's the Spirit of God that at their vows, according to the Old Testament book of, I believe it's Micah, says that I was there at your wedding day when you exchanged vow and I gave you a portion of my Spirit in your marriage. And then we quote that verse in Ecclesiastes in our marriage, that accord of Three strands is not easily torn apart, but then we quit whenever one strand is being uncooperative and we don't lean into the third strand. 
See, what, what keeps Christian couples together is the work of the Spirit that gives them compassion and forgiveness for each other that they don't often have for each other. It's not their work, it's God's work in the marriage. And, and my, my point is simply this, Malon and Kilion rise up in their father's example of God can be trusted in some areas, but not in all areas. God's sort of a king, but not the king that we bow our knee to, so we wander off into a foreign land. And then when it comes down to Mary, instead of taking a 30 to 50 mile walk to find a wife, they marry what's convenient instead of what's godly. And there's a lot of you that do this. You date what's convenient. Your requirements are they are my type. Show me that in the Bible. God brought Eve to Adam and said, here. And I know that this is complex and it's confusing. And some of you are like, well, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, what if I marry the wrong person? God's sovereign. He works all things for good. You can have a bad start and have a good ending. You can have a good beginning and have a bad ending as well. And my, my point in this is not so much to get you to theologically good in the wormhole of trying to come up with a justification for leaving the person you currently are married to which is what we like to do in church to over-spiritualize it, but I'll digress on that. Instead of actually pushing in on the fact that God's given us his spirit and he's at work, hear us, and he desires to give us. Some of you are like, I want a new marriage. Why don't you have a new marriage with the same spouse? <laughs> preach it, preacher! You go! What have they done? Malon and Killian. I'm piddling. I don't have time. Deuteronomy 7.3. Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 7.3. It says, you must not intermarry with them. Speaking of the Moabites, do not let your daughters or your sons marry their sons and daughters. What are they doing? They're making scripture optional. Is it authoritative or is it optional? For them, according to dad, it's optional. Now, when it's not convenient, it's optional. Look at what it goes on to say. Deuteronomy 23.3. It goes on to say this, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for 10 generations may be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. So he's cut them off from coming into the presence of God and the temple of God because of what they've done to the nation of Israel. Take a long time to go through the history. Let's just say it's not good. So they're going and laying in bed and making covenants with the enemy and God's not happy. This is against his word. Now let me be clear, single men, if I told you 30 miles from here, the woman that God crafted for you was standing in a field waiting. We couldn't get the doors open fast enough. You would run. But they don't take the 30 to 50 mile walk. Instead, they just take what's convenient. Many young single men take what is in front of them instead of taking the longer route, but good route of God's will to the woman that God's crafted for them. Single men, humbly, I would invite you to stand up just for a moment. I want to pray for you. Single men, would you stand? Thank you. Praise God. Davin didn't want to leave Zach alone. Praise God. Soon not to be single, Davin. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, we can celebrate that. That's a good thing. Praise God. I, I, again, I, I love you. I want God's best for you. But let me be clear. You must look for more than a good time. You have been called to leave a good legacy. Leaving a good legacy is biblical. You have been called to love God, serve God, and worship God. And with that in mind, to look for and pursue and wait for a woman who loves God, serves God, and worships God. So that together, guess what? You can love God, serve God, and worship God. We need you to think about more. We need you to think more about having a good legacy than just a good time. So, a few questions for you. What kind of legacy are you building? 
what kind of legacy will your kids experience? Some of you are like, well, I'm not going to have any kids. Well, are you willing to give up how kids get made? And if the answer is no, then you should be preparing for the fact that you're probably going to have kids at some point because I know a lot of people that told me they weren't going to have kids, but they didn't give up how kids were made. And as a result of it, they became fathers, but they were still acting like adolescents. So they had grown man responsibilities. They shaved, but they didn't have a belt, a Bible, or a clue what it looked like to actually go about doing it. Our encouragement for you is to get a belt, get a Bible, get a job, love your God faithfully, and serve and wait on Him to bring the people that he would have you in your community around you to love well with you. Single men right now are marrying later than 30, which is not necessarily a sin, but during this time we have created delaying adulthood as a pastime and breaking lots of commandments as common practice. We celebrate it, we make commercials about it. Single women under 30 are more likely to have a job, a driver's license, and be connected to a local church than a single man. Praise God for single women who love the Lord. But my point is, single men, you have been called to love God well. Be concerned not merely with a good time, but with a good legacy. Listen, there will likely, for many of you, be people who will be impacted, if not directly carrying your last name for generations. For generations. So men, I want to pray for you because the task is difficult and there's not many examples of what it looks like to honor God in your singlehood. But can we pray for them in this church? Father, We bring the single men before you, and we know that you love them, that your desire is to empower them to be different and to live against the the current culture that works against, in your singlehood, being a man of responsibility. So God, I, I pray that you would raise these men up to be difference makers by the Spirit, to be empowered to honor you and love you well. So we ask God for your faithful hand in shepherding over their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Men, you can sit down. Amen. Can we give it up for our single men again? So what we get to, what do we get to in verse 5? We get to a funeral. There's been multiple funerals. Both Malon and Kilian died. This left Naomi, what's the word? Alone. Why did they move to Moab? Because they didn't want to die. What happened when they moved to Moab? They died. See the irony here. They moved to Boab because they were afraid of dying and they ended up dying. Being a pathrite means that you were fruitful, yet there are no children with Malon and Kilion and their family name dies. And here's Naomi brought to the center of the story. She has no godly community, no support. Her husband had no plan to care for her after he was gone. Our goal as men should be to love our wives even after we are gone. Two years ago, one of the most godly men I know Uh, was faced with a cancer diagnosis, and he knew that his time was coming to an end. And he had loved his family and left this incredible legacy. I had the honor of preaching his funeral. It was three and a half hours long, and no one was flinching. Some of you are all like, is this going to be three and a half hours long? No, I'm going to move, I promise. He (laughs) had taken the time, knowing that his time was coming to a close, to get a new roof put on the house, to get all the maintenance that needed to be done done, set up service contracts with his budget that would be left behind for her so that the house would be serviced and she wouldn't have to worry about the air conditioning and all that kind of stuff going out, with trusted people he trusted that would take care of her. He wrote cards on their anniversary so that for the next 10 anniversaries after his death, she got a, a card from him telling her, that he loved him, and had already prepaid for flowers to be delivered with the card with his florist in town. That's a godly legacy. That's thinking not about a good time all the time, but what leaves behind a good 
legacy. This is where we're at. Naomi has no one to care for her. Women in this time couldn't just go out and get a job unless it was prostitution. So we're looking at prostitution or hunger. Unless God intervenes and there's a kinsman redeemer or some kind of miracle, she, older in age, has no ability to bear children and therefore is in a position, along with her daughter-in-law, where they're likely looking at a very difficult road to any kind of hope in their future. Then verse 6 comes. Naomi, after the funeral, heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland with her two daughters-in-law. She set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. They make the walk the men won't take. With no protection. I mean, this is a road that likely makes them a target. They are sheep and a pack of wolves on that road. But she knows there's bread there, and the people of God are there, and the presence of God is there. And if that's where the people of God and the presence of God are, we've got to have enough sense to actually go back there if there's any hope for anything in the future, even if it's a grain of hope that she has left. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept bitterly. You see, for good to begin, bad had to end. And now they're mourning the fact that they're in a tragedy instead of a story of triumph. And Naomi is the ER doctor that looks at it and says, Look, my husband's dead. My sons are dead. I have no kids now. Even if I could, it'll be years before I could make kids for you to actually marry, which you're not going to wait around on. So let's just call it. Call time of death, call in the autopsy, have the funeral, and let's get to the path of whatever's going to be next. After some debating back and forth, we pick up the story in verse 15. Look at what it says. Uh, Excuse me, pick it up in verse 14. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So Orpah, we get two paths. Orpah hears Naomi's encouragement and does what Naomi's encouraging her to do. It will be easier to leave than it would be to stay. She doesn't know of Israel's God. She doesn't know of the people in Israel. She'll be seen because she's not ethnically Jewish as being untouchable, one. On top of that, she's already been married, so she's not going to be seen as valuable by many men who won't give her dignity or look at her with grace. So it'd be easier around her own people to find a fresh start than it would be to stay where she's at. And this is a principle I want to drive home at the end. I know that some of you, I've I've said some hard things. You're already mad at me. You're counting on the seconds to never come back here again. But my point is this. Listen, sometimes God calls us to stay when it's easy easier to leave. And on the other hand, there are times where God calls us to leave when it's easier to stay. It's tough to figure that out sometimes. It's tough to discern, do I stay or do I leave? But but let me make sure you understand that the carnal motivators that inform a lot of these decisions, more money, more time being given to work, new people to lead, or authority and power that you get from a world standard. These are not the green lights on staying or going. There's an exodus going on in California, in case you're wondering. There's no one on the roads, no more traffic. It's a miracle. It's a joke that people in California would get. But, But not all of it's godly. 
Some of it is completely carnal. We don't want to deal with the government. We don't want to put our, our boots on and worship God and serve God in a place that's working against that. And for some of us, look, look, we've lived in security of the Bible Belt, and it's time to leave and go to a place that is secular and everything that you don't want your kid around, potentially, because God is calling you to be a light in darkness with a people that he will join you to and a community that will worship him corporately together. So, so they say, it's time to call it. Orpah goes back, but Ruth, what does she do? She clings to Naomi. Naomi said to her, in verse 15, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about a transformative moment. I mean, here, here's a woman who, by cultural standards, doesn't have a lot going on, but she just made the greatest of new beginnings you could ever make. And she just points to this God that she doesn't even know, that she didn't learn from, from her husband, likely. And looking at her mother-in-law, who doesn't even trust the God that she's going back to, she says what her mother-in-law may not even have the building and her bitterness to say. Those people will be my people, good or bad, for better or for worse. And that God, Yahweh, He will be my God. I will serve Him. She does what the men wouldn't do. She turns to God instead of away from God. She walks towards God instead of walking away from God. She doesn't allow apathy or indifference to separate her. And who knows what may happen when she gets to the presence of God and the people of God. But nonetheless, she's not going to stay in the absence of God hoping that one day she finds herself there or better or having survived. My, my point in bringing all this up is just this. For good to start, bad must end. For good to start, bad must end. And sometimes in God's grace, he starts it completely over. And it's not because he's ripping anything from you. It's because he's trying to send you into a different trajectory, down a different path. And so I want to ask you this question. Who or what do you need to walk away from in order for good to start? Now, let me be clear. Some of you, you read that and you're like, oh, that's, I need to walk away from my marriage. No, you don't. You need to lean into the third strand of your marriage. So don't you come up in this church going, well, the Spirit told me. That ain't the Holy Spirit. That's a demonic spirit. We're to test the spirits by the Word of God. God doesn't desire that you would break and leave and walk away from a difficult marriage. Instead, walk out the door and come back in and start a new marriage with them today. Get back to the way God designed this together. Well, they won't do it. Well, the entire Bible in the New Testament deals with one believing spouse who's unequally yoked and married to a non-believing spouse and how to lovingly and compassionately and graciously stay with them and serve them as a witness to the glory of God. There's lots of encouragement in it. So, so the application of this is not, I need a new spouse. So some of you read that, you're like, I need to walk away from them. No, but you may need to walk away from your friends who constantly bring conflict and hell into your marriage. You can get, a new, you can get new friends, but you shouldn't get a new spouse. The stupidity of some of us that says that we will keep our friends over our family because we were with them from the womb. No, no, no. Some of them need to die. They don't need to ride. 
in order for what needs to thrive to thrive. So some of you need to walk away from some friends. Some of you need to walk away from a job because it keeps demanding more and more and more. But the money's so good. And here's the problem. You are making yourself replaceable at home because you think in your mind you're irreplaceable at work. And I'm telling you, you've got it backwards. You are irreplaceable at home, but you are very replaceable at work. Somebody else will do the job. I I need this to get through to somebody today. So you're making decisions right now, thinking, oh, well, I can buy more for them. And, And they can go on more exotic vacations. Who cares? Your kid doesn't care about a better Christmas. Are you kidding me? They already forgot what you bought them. They, here, it's a shocker. You ready? They want you. They want you. They, they want you in the backyard. They, they want you in a wrestling match, you know, playing around at night before you get it. They want you dancing even though you can't dance in the house. In a day. They want you cooking dinner with mom. They want you kissing mom. They want you dating mom. They want you. They want you. Yeah, you may have to sell the house. The market's good for that. I mean, like, sell away. Yeah, you may have to make some financial sacrifices, but don't make yourself replaceable where you're irreplaceable. Who or what do you need to walk away from? And then the last question, what bad in your life needs to end so that good can start? For some of you, the bad in your life is you in the driver's seat. It's you in and of yourself living your own way for your own will, for your own glory. For some of you this morning, what needs to happen is we we don't need a co-pilot, we need a pilot. And you've been a bad choice for the pilot. I walked down here after last service inviting people to come forward for prayer if they need to give their life to Jesus. And we had no one that was actually planning to get baptized today. Um, But we filled up the water because it said baptism Sunday. And so, you know, we're going to be obedient. So I walked down and this guy looks at me and he goes, he walks out, and I was like, oh, there, there he goes. We'll never see him again. And next thing I know, he's in the baptistry getting baptized. He took the walk that he knew he needed to take. Some men in this room, you don't want to do this, but you know it's the walk you need to take. It's the next step of obedience. We got shirts, we got shorts, we got towels. We got everything you need to still go to that Mexican restaurant and look good. And in the next few moments in the back, I've got Daniel and Zach and Kelsey and some people back there, they've got the shirts and the shorts, and as we sing and respond, some of you, what you need to do is you need to respond by going and getting changed and doing what you know is next in obedience to the glory of God, just like he did, because when he did, you know what's amazing? This is what's fun. He did it, his wife went, and she went too. So we baptized husband, and then we baptized wife. Men, take the lead. Be the lead servants. Do what God's calling you to do. Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, you move as the Lord leads. Let's stand to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen.